The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. They felt so betrayed by their own country, the same country that many of them who were veterans um, had signed up to serve had and made, had made a life of serving. And they felt directly betrayed as well by the federal agency that oversaw them. Um, the people who were supposed to be looking out for them were just not looking out for them. You know, not sufficiently, not adequately, not competently, not with enough concern and care. And, and they were changed and they were hurt and they were damaged in ways that they knew would stay with them for a very long time. You know, both emotional and sort of just their perspective on life, which is painful and not nothing and sort of existential, but also at a really physical level. Some of them are in chronic pain. Some of them have, you know, the aftermath of concussions that have left them with volatile personalities, much more so than they had been before. I felt like a lot of these officers felt unrecognizable to themselves. That, that, that was how much the events of that day had changed them. I'm Natalie Orpet, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 25th, 2022. Over the last year, our national dialogue about the January 6th Capitol attack has become ever more focused on politics, congressional investigations, and criminal prosecutions. But what about the people who were actually on the front lines on January 6th? I sat down with Susan Dominus and Luke Broadwater, who recently published an article in the New York Times Magazine called The Capitol Police and the Scars of January 6th. The article tells the stories of some of the law enforcement officers who were there that day, many of whom continue to experience the impact of January 6th in profoundly personal ways. We talked about what they learned through their reporting and what it means for ongoing efforts to respond to the attack. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 25th, the Capitol Police and the Enduring Effects of January 6th. Susan and Luke, a few weeks ago, you wrote an article in the New York Times Magazine called The Capitol Police and the Scars of January 6th. And I think it makes the point that what happened on January 6th isn't just an abstract concept or a political debate. It's actually embodied in these people whose lives were on the line and who are living with the aftereffects of that day in really personal ways, but also how their experiences both reflect and affect much bigger national security issues that we're dealing with. So you start with a really vivid description of several officers' first confrontations with the rioters, and you go on to talk in detail about their experiences both that day and in the year since. So I wanted to start just by asking you, Susan, why did you want to tell these stories? We want to tell these stories for the reasons you just mentioned, which is that a lot of the national trauma that so many Americans felt was something that these people really felt physically in their bodies. And by telling their stories in the aftermath, we wanted to bring home just how deep the suffering was, which I think, first of all, becomes a question Uh, and relevant when you start to think about accountability for the attacks on January 6th, and also simply just to educate the public about how many officers were violently attacked that day. And one way to do that is not just through listing numbers, but through telling their very specific stories and making it really real. Yeah, and I thought that was really powerful. So there's a lot to talk about and think about from your article, but for the purposes of this podcast, I want to focus on how those experiences are informing or how they're not informing 
the response to January 6th. So things like you mentioned, accountability, how to prevent this from happening again, what the state of security is right now, and how all of that starts, of course, is with defining what the actual threat was. So right now we're seeing a lot of competing narratives about what exactly the how we should understand January 6th. Everything from it was a one-time event, a protest that went too far, to it's just one in a string of examples of domestic extremism that is the biggest national security threat we're facing right now. So I want to talk about that and how the people that you spoke with understood the threat that they confronted that day. And then I want to come back to how they're thinking about the threat we're facing now. But how are officers that you spoke with understanding and articulating the threat that they faced on January 6th? Luke, I'll start with you. For this article, we spoke to dozens of Capitol Police officers, and their views of the threat level varied pre-January 6th. There were a number of people we talked to who thought it would be just another protest. You know, they had had two pro-Trump protests near the Capitol uh, in the weeks and months before uh, over, uh, you know, false claims of election fraud. And so they thought it would just be like that. There were others, though, who said they were res- they, had, they were starting to pick up before January 6th on the uh, threats they were seeing online and also on the messages they were res- receiving from the Capitol Police management be on the lookout for. And so some of them were starting to feel very uneasy before January 6th and others, I think, went into that day sort of unaware. As you know, there was no real plan from management on how to deal with a huge mob attack on the Capitol. There was no, they weren't prepared. Very few people had protective gear that day. They, they didn't even cancel leave for everyone. So they, they were understaffed, undermanned, and overrun. In the time since January 6th, I think there's it would be impossible not to be aware of the threat at this point, right? And so in some ways, the department started to, I don't know if the right word is overcorrect, but they started putting up a fence for smaller rallies. They started uh, putting up pretty intense security all the time. Uh, they started demanding everyone work in larger numbers at, at, for longer hours. Uh, that burnt out a lot of people. And a lot of people went out on leave for, you know, mental health treatment for their injuries. And so and a lot of people quit and left the agency. So that created more manpower shortages. So I think they're obviously much more aware of the threats of right wing extremism, of the threats of mob violence than they were before January 6th. And the question is now whether the force can rise to the level of making sure something like this doesn't happen again. Yeah. And I do want to come back to that idea of the safety of the force itself. But Susan, you want to, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I was just thinking a little bit more about how they perceived the risk going into it um, ahead of time. And it's not even just that some people were aware that there might be a risk. I mean, I think there was a whole cohort of officers that we wrote about who were frankly, in almost a panic about it and were in such a panic about it that they were demanding of their higher ups to tell them, what is the plan? What are we doing here? And one officer I interviewed who went by the name, used his middle name, Anton, talked about even going so far as to kind of write up a proposal for the way that they might use the members of the riot guard who were trained on, um, or the, the civil disturbance unit who were trained on long guns. How could they best use those resources, given that they were expecting uh, this frankly dangerous crowd and um, asking questions like, what do we do if there's even, you know, one person who's armed and fires? Like, what, what, what is our plan? And they really got no answers. They had a sergeant who was trying to raise these questions up the ranks, but they just weren't being taken seriously. So, you know, it was, there was definitely among a cohort, at least one that I know of, and possibly many more, among the officers, a real sense that that this was um, something they really needed to address. And so nobody can say they were surprised. I mean, these issues were being raised very specifically by Capitol Police themselves. What do you think accounted for the difference in how people were perceiving the threat and whether people were listening to those warnings? Or what did people say about that who you spoke with? 
it's so funny. I, in a way, I think about it as how how could we have been so prepared? It's not it's not that different from how could it have been that we were so unprepared for COVID in this country once we knew that it was in China? And the answer people always told me about that was, well, you know, we had Ebola in Africa and it never made it over here. And I think there was a sense that, well, we had a couple of Trump protests and not only did they go basically well, but they were extremely respectful of the Capitol Police. So this is a, a Trump supporting rally. We've never really had a problem like this before. There's no real reason to think it could possibly go as badly as people are imagining. That's one issue. And I, I think another issue, there's some, there's some, th there was some good judgment being executed in the sense that I think people did not want to overcompensate and overarm officers and present the kind of overarmed uh, image of the Capitol Police that could actually possibly have incited um, a crowd even more if they were being faced down with heavily armed, heavily armored people. It's possible they were trying to head off exactly the kind of um, frenzied confrontation that ultimately ensued anyway. I don't know, Luke, what do you think about that? I think they didn't want to believe. <laughs> they didn't want to believe it. You know, I've, I've, I've thought a lot about this. I've looked a lot into why they could not see the terrible warnings of this crowd amassing and, and, and directly threatening to attack the Capitol. Uh, they had these intelligence reports that almost seemed prophetic in retrospect. I mean, they lay out exactly what's going to happen. They say like a, an armed mob of white supremacists and racists is planning to attack the Capitol. Like it says like, it, it's almost so right on. And it's, you know, they, that's their own intelligence assessment three days before the attack. And I think it was a number of things, but I think the main thing was it, it they couldn't wrap their minds around the idea that the president of the United States would, through his rhetoric and lies, essentially direct an attack on another branch of government. And so they they thought it would just be a protest and they didn't they didn't prepare properly. You know, there's been a lot of talk about whether racism was involved in that, if it had been a, you know, a large crowd of Black Lives Matter supporters, would they have been much more prepared? You know, those are those are counterfactuals that people can debate. I, there's probably some merit to that, that a lot of uh, law enforcement saw Trump supporters as on their side and unlikely to attack them or uh, really to commit violence against police. So, uh, you know, it's it's hard to know in retrospect, but I think the, the overarching thing is like a, is a failure of the imagination, a failure to believe the intelligence that's right in front of your own eyes. You know, in some ways you can understand that because who would have thought the, you know, that a president would attack Congress? Like it's it's something out of like, I don't know, like the Roman Empire or something when like Rome stop, stops being a republic. It's so... You know, I can understand why people didn't want to believe that it, what was happening. You know, I certainly didn't believe it was going to happen that day like that. I walked up that day and entered the Capitol. I talked to some people in the crowd. I interviewed some protesters and went inside. I didn't know it was going to end up the way it did. So I can understand um, in some ways how you, it was hard to foresee this coming, even though it was so obvious in retrospect. So I did want to talk about this component that you spoke about, which is that among this crowd and pretty clearly among the motivations for people being there was a really racist undertone. There were groups of individuals there who belonged to white supremacist extremist organizations, including those that specifically espouse violence to accomplish their ends, which I think is, you know, really goes to the question of how could these people have been evaluated as less of a threat but Susan, can you talk to us a little bit about that thread that sort of goes through the perception of the threat, the way it was maybe dealt with that day and how people are thinking about it now? Harry Dunn is one of the Capitol Police officers who first spoke to the press about the racism that he experienced that day. Um, I think he you know, said he'd never been called the N-word while in uniform, and he'd heard that word many, many times. Um, and you know, to hear that in the Capitol building while he was serving as a federal officer, you know, as, as he put it in one of the interviews, there was something that Black officers were experiencing that day that was very specific to them very painful and extremely demoralizing and devastating. There were other black officers I interviewed who, you know, said, oh, yeah, I was called the N-word many times that day. 
And yet that wasn't the most salient aspect of what they endured. I mean, it was, I think they just, it was, it was just part and parcel of a group of violent, hateful people who sounded completely irrational in the things that they were saying they were hoping to do or experience. What was interesting about Harry Dunn and what he said to the press was that I think there were officers who, I mean, the off, you know, the Capitol Police Force is majority white and a lot of it is pretty conservative. And I definitely was hearing from officers who were white, some of, you know, some definitely heard from some white officers that they resented the introduction of race into the conversation about what happened that day, which was interesting. I mean, they, they felt it was somewhat divisive and it was sort of off point as they perceived it. And I think um, for some of them, there was a sense that it, it seemed to create a hierarchy of suffering, which was uncomfortable to them, especially as, um, there were two officers who who died. One was Brian Sicknick um, of, of two strokes, and one was Howard Liebengood who committed suicide. I think there was a sense that this created some kind of hierarchy of suffering. That's how they interpreted it. Um, you know, obviously being unable themselves to really experience what it would be like to have that language thrown at you on the floor of the Capitol. So it was it was something that came up a lot um, in the press, and then it was something that I think the force itself reacted to in interesting. Um, in complicated ways. Yeah. How do you think the the inconsistency or the division and how people understood the racism component to be part of the threat, how did that affect how things are working now, how people are thinking about what needs to be done in response? How are people dealing with grappling with that division? You know, this is something that I heard from a lot of officers. Um, I think the divisions on the force have never been more pronounced in terms of people's politics and maybe feelings around race. And at the same time, people talk about it less than they ever have. There's there's much more, people are much more careful, I was told, about what political opinions they would espouse. I think there's just more, that people are more careful because um, everything, that there is so, there's so much at stake that I think there is even less comfort talking about it. I know, Luke, you've you've written about that threat outside of the or beyond the context of January 6th itself to talk about how people of color who work at the Capitol, both officers and staffers, feel like they are particularly at risk um, of being targeted. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what that threat looks like, how people are either addressing it or not? There was terrible displays of racism that day. You know, the Confederate flag, you had Nazi imagery, you had extremist imagery. Beyond that, though, the the staffers I interviewed, they said it brought back all sorts of trauma of any time in their lives when they had encountered racism. And they had thought that coming to the Capitol was a safe place, that you know, you're supposed to be around all these, you know, you, you've made it, right? Everyone's wearing suits and you're making the nation's laws and it's supposed to be the real success stories of the country who have succeeded in their own communities and now they've come to Washington to make a difference. And here you are on Capitol Hill and all of a sudden you've got an angry racist mob in your face and they just can't get over it. I mean, they cannot get over how how close they came to physical harm, how close they came to death, uh, how, how much a reminder it was that this country has not progressed beyond its most racist elements in many ways, that those elements still exist, are still a threat. And, you know, it's interesting because Harry Dunn, who talks about, who initially came out talking a lot about race, about how his his experience was very much defined by being a black officer that day and how the racism he endured was among the terrible things that happened to him. He since has heard so much pushback from other members of the, of the Capitol police about talking about race that he has started to uh, tone that down and not, not speak about it as much. So, you know, I do think there's this push and pull there about how much 
um, to talk about race. He now says he doesn't believe it was a racist attack, that it was there were re- racist people in the crowd, but that the the mob itself was not motivated by racism. And, you know, we could discuss that and d- debate how, how much white supremacy played a role in in the extremists that we saw at the Capitol that day. But certainly there were very vivid displays of racism that day. And a lot of Black people on Capitol Hill are never going to forget that. So I think relating to the question of how people were perceiving racism as a piece of the attack was that in the aftermath, there was a major point of criticism among people who were comparing the Capitol Police and other law enforcement response to the attack in the Capitol to that of racial justice protests by groups like Black Lives Matter. And like I said, especially given the distinction between groups like Black Lives Matter that do not espouse violence, as opposed to groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys that very much do in an explicit way. So did you hear anything from officers or from others who you spoke to about their views on that criticism of of why the response was not seen as akin to previous law enforcement responses in other contexts, and in particular, why they didn't use their weapons? I Nobody addressed that specifically, but um, there were two officers who did tell me a story that, that I thought was very telling, which was about a conversation that they had on the evening of the election. Actually, it was, I guess, the results were not yet clear. And officers kept passing by and shaking their head and saying, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, when Biden loses, it's going to, we're going to have BLM in here. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be nuts. And these two officers, um, both of whom, one of whom described himself as mixed race, one of whom is black, you know, had a conversation when they were alone. And, you know, they, they did say to each other, you know, really what we should be worrying about is what happens if, um, if Trump loses and um, what's going to happen? Is the force going to, if it came down to some kind of violent confrontation, could we count on the force to protect Biden? And frankly, would they turn on us, you know, if we, if we tried to defend Biden's right to occupy the presidency? And so that was very much on their mind. Um, I don't think anybody thinks that it would have been better if there had been more encouragement for people to use their weapons. In retrospect, regardless of who was there that day, the more you know about what happened on January 6th, the more you realize what a miracle it is that only one officer actually used his weapon. It could have been such a bloodbath. And so many officers used the same language. They said things to me like, this is where they're going to find me, you know, dead on the Lower West Terrace. Like, this is where I'll die. I'm going to die today. I wonder if I'm going to die today. And a lot of them thought through, at what point would I discharge my weapon? At what point would I use my gun to defend myself? So they were thinking about it. And they were also considering themselves very close to real peril. And that they showed such restraint and that people in the crowd, (laughs) fortunately, did not, you know, pull their guns. Uh, it, it, given how many people were there, how violent it was, how afraid and outnumbered those officers were, it is really, again, I, I, I think many people feel is nothing short of miraculous that weapons were not drawn or used. Yeah. And did anyone speak about whether they feared that the rioters were going to be carrying weapons and what they would do in that event? Yeah, they were, they, they, I mean, most of them saw people's guns, you know, they was, they, they said they could look into the crowd and they would see like a coat would move and that, you know, they would see a gun there. They, and of course, you know, that there were guns um, at the Capitol that day. And I think honestly, Harry Dunn talks about it in the piece. He basically says, there's one of me, I've got my gun, but if I shoot, how many of them are there? And the other thing they said to me, Natalie, was they're Capitol police officers they're not John Wick. Like there are people in that crowd who are innocent of at least violence in the moment or, you know, who did not deserve to die if they misfired. I mean, this was a fast moving crowd of people. And I don't think the officer um, who, who, who gave me that line about not being John Wick, I think he just felt like, yeah, I'm going to try to fire on a protester, but how do I know I'm not going to hit the 
at a violent protester, but how do I know I'm not going to hit the 79 year old grandmother who's waving an American flag, who's, you know, also standing right next to that person. I'm in a compromised position. Things are moving quickly. Nobody wanted to invite more violence on the Capitol police officers by firing a gun. And nobody wanted to take a life that they didn't absolutely have to take. Yeah. Okay, I want to switch gears to look at what's been going on since January 6th to respond to what happened that day and how the experiences that you talk about in your piece have been factoring into the decision making. So obviously, there's a lot to unpack there, but I want to focus on a couple of areas and to start reforms within the Capitol Police. Right. So there's been a lot of discussion of just operationally. How did this happen? What can we do to fix it in terms of intelligence? Why was it misunderstood, as we've talked about a little bit already? But I want to dig in a little bit first on the intelligence failures. So as we talked about, there's been a lot of criticism that maybe the reason that the Capitol Police were not prepared that day is because they had the intelligence, but they didn't read it through properly. But then um, we heard, for example, from Chief Sund, who's the Capitol Police chief who testified before the committee and resigned, that a lot of the blame in his mind fell to federal agencies that had not provided intelligence. So how are the people that you spoke with thinking about the intelligence failures in particular and especially about what needs to be done going forward to improve on what happened? I I think the single biggest change that one can point to already is that uh, there was so much confusion about the, uh, even now it's not totally clear why it took so long for the National Guard to really um, arrive in force. They weren't there until, you know, the the Metropolitan Police and the Capitol Police had, had made significant progress. So, the, probably the most significant change is that the Capitol Police now has um, the authority, thanks to legislation that passed quite quickly, to independently call the National Guard. It doesn't have to go through some elaborate um, series of um, approvals by um, outsiders. And so I think probably in terms of the safety of Congress, that that might be you know one of the more significant changes. But obviously, people hope that it won't get to that point. So I think there's a sense that they, it's, it's unclear how quickly all of this is moving, but there's a sense that there needs to be better communication within the force, better intelligence sharing and better collaboration um, with law enforcement and engaging more actively with social media. And, and I think just that, that when there are concerns, probably that, you know, there's a, there's a probably the hope is that the culture will change so that there's um, a, an openness to suggestions and concerns as they get filed up the ranks. Yeah. And that goes right to the next thing I was going to ask you about, which is the focus on reforms to leadership. And you spoke with a lot of people in the article who had serious frustrations with the Capitol Police leadership both in terms of how they were at fault for what happened, but also in terms of how they've acted since then. And the inspector general actually talked about the need for, quote, hard changes in the department. So can you just talk a little bit about that? What is the view of people you spoke with about management, what needs to be done to change? You know, Unfortunately, the Capitol Police is in a difficult position because we know that so many Capitol Police officers have resigned, 20% more Capitol Police officers resigned since January of um, last year than in the previous year. It's just a huge uptick. So they're incredibly short-staffed. And what that means is that people who were being asked to work round the clock for security reasons are still being asked to work round the clock. And they're traumatized and they're demoralized and they're exhausted. And so they naturally do feel frustrated still with Capitol leadership. I do think there is a sense that at least around the issue of mental health, the department has already become more sophisticated and more sensitive and that there's more active encouragement from higher ups to take into account the need for strong uh, mental health care for these officers so they can recover and do their jobs as well as they need to to protect the capital. That's really good to hear. Yeah. But unfortunately, it's too late for a lot of people who left, you know, 
To me, that was a really interesting theme of the piece was how unbelievably jaded, um, but I don't even know if jaded is the right word, how disillusioned so many officers were by what they experienced that day. They felt so betrayed by their own country, the same country that many of them who were veterans um, had signed up to serve and had made, had made a life of serving. And they felt directly betrayed as well by the federal agency that oversaw them, um, the people who were supposed to be looking out for them, who were just not looking out for them. They, they, not sufficiently, not adequately, not competently, not with enough concern and care. And, and they were changed and they were hurt and they were damaged in ways that they knew would stay with them for a very long time. You know, both emotional and sort of just their perspective on life, which is painful and not nothing and sort of existential, but also at a really physical level. Some of them are in chronic pain. Some of them have, you know, the aftermath of concussions that have left them with volatile personalities, much more so than they had been before. I felt like a lot of these officers felt unrecognizable to themselves. That that, that was how much the events of that day had changed them. Yeah. And just a quick question. Do the people who have resigned have any access to mental health care or follow up medical care if they have specialized needs or are, are they getting support for their service? No, I, I mean, I think the people there are, I think the people who are injured the most, many of them are still on the force and have, you know, are still being, you know, they're still on the job and they're getting compensation. They've lost their overtime, obviously, but they have, they have those solid benefits. But I think that people will go back on the job, you know, with chronic pain that can isn't going to resolve no matter what anybody does, no matter how much physical therapy they have. Yeah. And in the meantime, the people who have resigned are basically left to themselves to to find the support that they need. Oh, I think that's accurate. Yes. That's really terrible. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep 
acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So to this point of you know, the the impact on the Capitol Police force itself, you have a number of people, like you said, who resigned and a number of people who are working through both physical and mental injuries and trauma. Are they understanding that, are the people that you spoke with understanding that in and of itself to be a threat to their ability to provide good security to the Capitol and to the legislators? I do think that there is, among many officers, a sense that their numbers simply are not big enough to do the work that is called for. They have, there's other reinforcement that's more available that, you know, in other words, this, this the difference in the Capitol Police's ability to call in the National Guard. That is no small thing. But obviously, a force that is diminished is less effective than a force that is in um, that is staffed in full. And there's also a concern because the training process for new officers is slow and laborious, and they only train so many officers at a time in a given year. So I do think there's a real sense that nobody understands how it is possible that the force will in fact replenish its numbers to the strength that it needs to reach for maximum efficiency. So yeah, I think, and I also think there's a sense that there's a real fear of what would happen the next time around. One officer expressed to me the sense that he wasn't so sure that officers would be willing to put their lives on the line in the way that they did on the 6th if they felt they were so under threat. And, you know, you can't ignore the fact also that a lot of the um, denialism within Congress about what happened on the 6th, you know, these officers have sworn to protect um, every member of Congress with their life. But I think that, you know, every job entails a certain amount of motivation. And I think that the motivation to risk everything to protect, you know, all these members when they have felt so betrayed by the diminishment of what they actually experienced that day, like these things are complicated. It's not good for the health of the Capitol Police. Like that is for sure. Yeah. And I mean, these officers were attacked on all sides. During the attack, they were called traitors. And then they were criticized for, you know, being accused of being sympathizers or being complicit. And then we're seeing, as you say, politicians minimizing what happened to them. So 
do people feel that that's compromising the pipeline of of new officers that are needed to replenish the force? I think that's a, a very good point. I mean, the Capitol Police has traditionally been a very, um, a relatively, I think some of them would even say a cushy job. The, the benefits are superb. Up until now, it has been a very safe place to work relative to the kinds of officers who are going undercover or who are, you know, working the beat and in a, in a you know, challenging area. And the pay is pretty good. The overtime is quite good. But I do think their reputation has suffered and that some of them said that they would not encourage young people to pursue that job anymore. That just the morale, the morale is from, from everyone I spoke to, the morale on the force is very, very low. You know, they were offered incentives to, um, you know, retaining bonus and a very high percentage of the officers took that retention bonus. But other officers said to me that there was the sense that, and I wasn't just hearing this from a handful of people. I mean, this is something I was hearing, you know, when I was randomly calling people to that, you know, people who had options were looking elsewhere. Um, people who were kind of locked into this job because the benefits were good and they maybe had families like, sure, they were going to stay, but that anybody who, who thought they could get out would get out. And who do people point to as either being responsible for or in the best position to help try to make morale better? Well, they, they point to management, um, but I also do think that management's hands are to some degree. I, I mean, it, it's it's hard to change a culture overnight. And I mean, it certainly has been done before, but they, you know, it's and, and actually their budget has, you know, I'm sure been expanded. So there should be more opportunity. I think there's universal agreement that management um, needs to be moving quickly, more quickly and moving more aggressively and creatively to um, address many of the changes that the inspector general recommended. Yeah. And you spoke also about a sense of betrayal from some members of Congress themselves who are not appreciating the service that people gave and everything they went through. What, what specifically did you hear from people in terms of what they would want? what they would want to feel that they were supported, that they were appreciated, that they would feel like their job was meaningful and would want to continue doing it and that would improve the overall morale of the force. I'm sure many of them would like to see real accountability for the people who attacked the Capitol that day. I think there's been a lot of frustration to date about how lightly so many people were getting off. Um, obviously, a jury trial is finally coming up for somebody who appeared at the Capitol with a gun. But I, I think that they feel they have, some of them expressed to me that they have suffered for much longer at this point now than will be the sentences of some of the people who were there that day um, and were acting so violently. So I think that's been very frustrating. And I think that's been impeding morale for sure for many of the officers. They need time off. They really need, that is the single most restorative thing that they could have. Um, it's just been very difficult to get. You know, many of them have been working for months at a time with only one or two days off a month. And they're, they're just so exhausted. They never had time to recover. You know, they're, I'm sure they're watching these committee hearings extremely closely and um, will be interested to see what prosecutions go forward as a result. And did anyone you speak to talk about the need for political accountability? The political accountability that people who deny the attacks would be voted out of office, that kind of thing? Yeah, anything, whether there should be some accountability to people either for having precipitated this or for not responding to it appropriately or anything like that. It's interesting. I think that there is a, a line. Um, some of the For some of the officers, it really was personal. They, their anger was mostly reserved for the rioters, you know, that was the immediate threat. Those were the people who were screaming in their face. Those were the people who were calling them the N-word. Those were the people who were threatening to murder them, you know, saying to them, I'm going to rip that mask off and, you know, shove this axe down your throat. I mean, just, it was very, very, it was so intense. And those threats were so salient and the violence was so painful that for some of them, they really didn't go beyond their the experience of that day to start to, to talk about the bigger issue of political accountability. 
Um, one woman I interviewed is the wife of an officer who had a really significant concussion. He still is suffering from brain fog, from volatility. He stutters sometimes. He has a very painful foot injury. He's still getting all kinds of uh, therapy, cognitive and physical, that's keeping him from going back on the job. I mean, this family has really, really suffered. And when I asked her whether she wanted to see accountability um, with, for example, President Trump, she explained to me that her family had voted for Trump. And although they saw him as deeply flawed, if he were the Republican candidate again, because they thought he had taken the country in the right direction, they would vote for him again. And I, that was interesting to me. And I tried to draw her out about it a little bit. And I, I, I think what she landed on was it's the Capitol Police's job to be prepared for whatever lunatic is in office and try something like this. That is their responsibility. And it was easier for her to, it wasn't that she was denying that Trump was, as she put it, you know, one piece of the puzzle, but um, she was more interested maybe for really deep cultural reasons and, you know, profound political allegiances. It was much more important to her that the Capitol Police be held accountable. And there was there are still people in management positions there whom she wanted to see leave or fired. So, you know, I don't think that necessarily some I think there are many Capitol Police officers who know they don't they don't want to see Trump held accountable. They are going to vote for him again. They their blame it lies elsewhere. Yeah, I, I'll just jump in on this one, too. I do think there's a mix on the force. While there are still a lot of Trump supporters who, who want to don't don't want to blame him for what happened, there are, you know, there are cops who, when they hear Republican members of Congress deny what happened or that it was just a tourist visit, that really angers them. And um, you know, I talked with a couple people in the who were, who ended up in the story who said, you know, it's hard to it's hard to work for those guys when they. Are going to deny what happened and it they, they pay attention to the news they watch when new videos are released of of their friends and themselves being assaulted and they they watch these hearings or at least see clips of them and they hear um the crazy things some uh right-wing members of congress say about what happened that day so i do think a, a lot of people's reaction will be tied up in their ideology and, you know, obviously some, you know, Michael Fanon and and Harry Dunn and the Sitnik family went door to door trying to persuade Republican senators to vote for a commission. So some of them have taken a more political stance on this. Um, you know, Sue got some great stuff for the story inside those meetings where you heard Republican senators making excuses or not paying attention or condemning the the violence, but not wanting to follow through with an investigation and how that was very frustrating for some of these families. So I do think a lot of it does matter about how intertwined someone's identity is with their political party and or not and sort of how they responded. And it's also interesting to note, by the way, that although some people did hold fast to longstanding ideologies, such as this family I was talking about earlier, Sandra Garza, who is Brian Sicknick's, um, she was his girlfriend and life partner. She was a devout Trump supporter, as was Brian Sicknick. And in fact, they, um, you know, Brian believed that the election, you know, was not valid. And she did have a change of heart after this happened. And obviously from the story that Luke just told, she she no longer is a Trump supporter, but does want real political accountability. So you spoke about really different visions of how to understand who's to blame, how to understand the event and what needs to be done about it. So given the different views is the the lack of cohesion there making a difference in how decision makers are thinking about what needs to be done? I think so. Certainly in Congress, that's true. I mean, you know, on the Senate side, you had an agreement in their investigation that they would only look at security failures. They did not want to look in at any of the political events that led up to the mob attack on the Capitol. And so they did a great job investigating all the things the Capitol Police did wrong, but they didn't touch a single thing any political actor did, did wrong. 
And so, and of course, you don't have a mob assemble outside the Capitol of thousands of people, thousands of angry people on the date of January 6th without the politics, right? It's not, you know, they, they didn't just attack the Capitol for fun. So they believe the, the lies they were told by politicians. So, and then on the House side, you have, you know, an investigation that's led by Democrats, which is looking much more into um, the political events that led to the attack and not as much to date into the security failures. I do think they'll eventually get there. They'll start bringing in more of the people to look at security failures, but they sort of feel like the Senate did such a good job with that, that they can take a lot of their recommendations and incorporate them into the report. As for Capitol Police management, what they keep saying is they've, they've now got to defend the building from whoever might attack it. And that, you know, the new chief manger says whether it's Republicans who attack it or Democrats or the threats come to all different kinds of members of Congress, 9,000 some threats in the past year. We can't look at the politics. We have to just look at um, protecting whoever the lawmaker is. So I think they're trying to take this sort of non-political approach in their and how they're approaching security. But certainly the investigations have have broken down along uh, various political lines. Yeah. And on that theme of sort of who's speaking for the Capitol Police, I wanted to also ask you both about an article that was a follow on to this one, which was just you're talking about why it is that people chose to speak with you. And I'm interested in how people who you interviewed, both those who have gone on the record and spoke not only with you, but with other media outlets and and even those who testified in Congress, as well as those who spoke off the record or with pseudonyms, how do they see their role? What are they doing now and what do they want from it? Susan? They, they all gave, it, was, it was interesting the range of reasons why people decided to speak. Some people spoke because they really did want there to be changes at the Capitol Police itself. Um, they wanted accountability for all that went wrong. They wanted to finally be heard and explain what they thought should happen going forward um, and speak their piece. Harry Dunn you know, has often said that he, one of the reasons he really wanted to speak was to defend the Capitol Police from allegations of cowardice or complicity because so many officers had fought so incredibly bravely that day. Um, one of the officers, Dominic Tricocci, basically said he wanted to tell his story in its entirety, in all of its humanity, as a three-dimensional person, because he felt that some of the divisions that exist in this country didn't acknowledge the basic humanity of who people were, that as a police officer, he'd been attacked in so many different ways over the past year and a half at rallies of all kinds. And he just felt that if people could recognize that there was a person there that would go a long way towards um, maybe, it, it, would, it was his part to try to bridge the divide and even bridge the political divide. It was some small thing that he could do. Sergeant Gunnell, I think, very specifically wanted to speak out to counter the narrative that that this had been a tourist visit and that no harm had been done that day. And he has he was himself was so badly injured that he was just outraged by that idea and just wanted to make sure that people really understood the depth of suffering that officers um, were still enduring months, months out Just set the record straight. Yeah. I mean, you still have officers who are undergoing surgeries. Uh, you have uh, ones who are still severely depressed. You have some who are still on leave. Many people quit. A lot of PTSD. Yeah. And like even, you know, um, Caroline Edwards, who's the lead of the piece that Susan wrote so beautifully, um, you know, she thought she was ready to come back to work and help all these other people recover. And she was going to be a counselor. And she's still like passing out from from the traumatic brain injury that she had. So you know, it's it's uh, even people who think they're over it. Sometimes you're not over it. And yeah, the, just how just how I hope that the readers will leave with the understanding of how long lasting this trauma was and how severe it was. Yeah, it's very much a live issue. This is not something that happened a year ago to people. And that's exactly how they put it, that they're still living. They're, they're still living with it for sure. Luke, what did you hear from people? You know, it really depended on who I talked to. Some people just were very angry and embittered and depressed, and they did not 
they were they felt they had been failed so badly that they it was almost like a therapy session for why they why they were talking i think other people were trying to in their view get the right narrative out to the public that you know they'd seen so much misinformation on the internet they'd seen lies spread they'd seen i don't know pr stuff <laughs> then they just wanted to tell the truth it was it's funny i was walking to the capitol the other day and i was going through security and one of the cops stopped me and this is going to sound self congratulatory but he said he wanted to relay to, to me and and to pass it on to to sue also about how we had in his view it, words nailed it and that we had described the state of the Capitol police accurately and you know we didn't sugarcoat things i don't think we were necessarily overly critical either we we just tried to show what these officers really went through what the Capitol police really went through and whether it can be fixed or or improved and so you know i i was glad to hear that because sometimes you worry about the tone of a piece and is it did we go too far in one way or another but at least within the rank and file officers I've spoken with on the force, they feel like we we did them justice. Yeah, that's great to hear. And I, I was actually going to ask you and individually, how have you found the response to this article to be? Because I know for me personally, when I read it, I was really moved and I was really grateful that you had done the work because it seemed to me that these voices of, you know, the human beings whose lives had been on the line were absent from all of the political rhetoric that we were hearing. So what's, what sorts of reactions have you been seeing, both from officers like you just spoke about, Luke, but also from, I don't know, other, other reporters, from members of Congress, from staffers, um, from anyone? What, what response have you seen, Susan? I mostly checked in with the officers and I think, I mean, I checked in with the people whom I'd interviewed. And so, you know, it was great. It's always gratifying to hear that they feel that they've been accurately represented. It's interesting. I just, I don't know. I just saw that Amy Klobuchar started following me. I, and I wondered if that, if it was related to this piece, I mean, or her, you know, whoever matters her social media account. But I, I think I, I, I'd be more curious to hear what Luke heard as somebody who covers Congress regularly and whose colleagues were there that day who, who see the Capitol police officers on a regular basis when they're there. And I, we haven't even talked about it that much. What, ha- what else have you heard, Luke? You know, I was a little worried no one would read it because I thought it's so long and it's so depressing <laughs> that, you know, yeah. it's like that, that movie you're supposed to watch, but you never want to, you know, cause it's like this serious movie that and you'd rather just watch something light when you get home after a hard day. You know, I mean, generally what I've heard is that people, because of the way the story was told, they really got inside the minds of the officers as the attack was happening and afterwards. And that brought to the forefront their humanity. And so immediately they could relate to people and they could see the attack through their eyes and they could, you know, hear the the horrors that they heard. And, you know, so uniformly I've heard you know, positive things about, about the piece. Um, I haven't had anybody complain to me about it. I don't think I've gotten, I actually got some comments from some of the Republicans too. So it wasn't, it wasn't just one-sided um, in terms of the people that, that read it. The, 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 the woman from the press gallery said she printed it out and took it home because she started reading it at work and wanted to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. I, I haven't heard that it like necessarily like changed anyone's life or that a law is being changed because of it, but I or anything like that. But I, I do think from the people who read it, they probably understood the horror and the trauma that the Capitol Police suffered in a new way. And I think that if if we could just, you know, get through to to, to the readers the truth of what happened that day, I think that that is, you know, mission accomplished. You know, it's it's interesting. I um, for those of us who are you know reporters or who cover Congress or who work at Lawfare, like you know, 
presumably we've been following the events of that day pretty carefully, but I was at an, a dinner in the middle of reporting the story um, with some, they were actually mostly friends of friends, but definitely very educated people. And um, one of them said to me when I told her what I was working on, she, you know, she said, oh, were any of those, um, were any of the officers injured? And I realized that when she thought about the news coverage she'd been seeing, it had mostly focused on officers who were accused of being complicit. And that even she, who happens to be a progressive person, I just felt like she, even she couldn't really understand the violence of what happened that day unless she um, really understood what happened to the officers because they were the ones bearing the brunt of it. So I do think there is still just a tremendous amount of education to go on about, yeah, just the basics of what was it like to be there that day as a Capitol Police officer. Yeah. And I think that just telling the truth, as you've said, is a big part of accountability. And it's part of what the country needs right now. So Susan, Luke, I want to thank you so much. I think, unfortunately, we will have to leave it there. But thank you for doing this. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this week was Hamza Shitu of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.